Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, Episode 9. I am your host, B. Chavez, and as always, I would like to thank each and every one of you for joining me here again this month. And uh, we have a really exciting show on tap today. We have a guest, Alex Harrison, a uh, contender for the United States Olympic bobsled team, a PhD candidate, and generally just all-around super smart guy on the subject of training and specifically force production, and speed strength. So this is going to be a really, really exciting episode. Uh, a little more on him and his thoughts in a moment. Uh, I would like to take a second to remind everybody that you can find this radio show and the rest of Evil Genius Sports Performance material uh, at Team Evil GSP. Uh, the exception to that is YouTube, which I will come to in a moment. Uh, also want to remind everyone that If you are listening to this show via Podbean or iTunes, it is also available on YouTube. And the YouTube address for that is Evil GSP. And also like to let everyone know that uh, via the Team Evil GSP website, www.teamevilgsp.com, you could sign up for our newsletter and then never miss any of our products or material. So enough with the... uh, the business side of things, enough trying to sell the ranch, and on to our very exceptional guest for today, Mr. Alex Harrison. As I said, a potential candidate for the United States Olympic bobsled team. He is a PhD candidate, just really, really super smart guy. Uh, We're going to talk to Alex for about an hour on the subject of speed strength. Um, he uses different language because he comes from a different world. Speed strength is typically the language used in barbell sports. Uh, Alex talks more in the context of track and field, which is very exciting to me. Those of you that know me know that uh, my educational background is in fact in or from the track and field arena. So, uh, Though we use different language and though we uh, are essentially solving different problems, uh, we have a lot of similar background, he and I, so it's a really, really interesting and exciting uh, conversation. Uh, for those of you that are powerlifters, which is probably the predominance of my core audience, I really, really press you, I really, really strongly suggest you take a moment and clear your mind because an awful lot of what Mr. Harrison is going to say does not jive with the common dogma in barbell sports today. I really, really, really strongly urge you to clear your mind and listen to what the man says, because no matter how it cuts across your grain, you cannot deny that the things he says make extraordinary sense. They're contiguous, logical, sensible, and dare I say, supported by real science. So uh, I, I, I really suggest that, that though this will make you grit your teeth, you really listen, because I think there's an awful, awful lot that, of take-home message there, things that you can apply to your own training, and uh, things that can just really make you think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, I really, really think this is a, a, a powerful learning lesson uh, and eye-opener for most barbell athletes. So with no further ado, the next thing you will hear will be Mr. Alex Harrison. Evil Genius Sports Performance is now accepting a limited number of new clients. If you would like a consult, please email via the Team Evil GSP website. You're listening to Sports Performance Radio. 
promised, we are live on the air with Alex Harrison. I'm going to let Alex do most of the introductions, but this is the real deal. This is a doctoral candidate, an Olympic caliber athlete. This is the real deal. So, Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Broderick. Um, I, uh, I am very excited. You are exactly the kind of person I wanted to have when I set out to do this show. Somebody that's a little outside of my box, somebody that's going to make me as a scientist, as a host, as all the things I am, to stretch and to really expose my people, my demographic, to real science, real athletics, uh, maybe from a slightly different angle, from a different direction. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to tell my listeners about the science of force production, speed, strength, and any other language that you want to put on that. So uh, without any more from me, introduce yourself, talk about your athletic pedigree, your educational pedigree, and then tell us how to get really, really fast and powerful. Okay. Um, so um, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Uh, I I do probably come from outside your your realm of expertise a little bit in that I operate at a little bit faster velocities as a bobsledder uh, than, say, a powerlifter. Um, but so my, my athletic background comes initially from track and field, uh, competed in, in Division II at the national level a couple of times, All-American there, um, and then transitioned into the sport of bobsledding uh, and recently qualified for Team USA, was on Team USA, placed uh, top 15 in, in the world championships uh, for bobsledding uh, for both two-man and four-man bobsled. Um, and hopefully uh, you'll see me in the Olympics in 2018 in South Korea um, as a bobsled brakeman. So that's that's what I train for on a daily basis um, here in Snohomish, Washington. Um, my academic background, I got my undergraduate in kinesiology, master's degree in human movement and performance, uh, with a focus in biomechanics, and my PhD uh, that I'm still completing, I've got I have to finish writing my dissertation, which is on bobsled conveniently. PhD is in sport physiology and performance, uh, and that's coming from East Tennessee State, where I study under Dr. Stone, um, and that that really is where I took the science that I learned uh, in my in my undergraduate and masters, and really applied it to how to make athletes. Uh, not to be cliche, but bigger, faster, and stronger. Just so you know a little bit further of my scientific background, I also minored in biology and chemistry uh, in my undergrad, um, which I think has been really valuable in looking at muscle physiology and how it applies to training uh, either novice athletes or elite athletes training the whole spectrum. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. My my degree is in biology and my minor is in chemistry. And I, I really think being able to understand the greater organism just does wonders for your overview of the subset of athletes. It, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I'd like to talk about um, how how we can get to be large and fast at the same time because in in some respects that's a contradictory process. Um, and I think one of the most important things to do in that endeavor is to identify where your need for speed lands on the force velocity curve. Uh, if you're not familiar with the force velocity curve, I know, Broderick, you're familiar with the force velocity curve, but um, the the velocity, velocity is on the x-axis, force is on the y-axis, 
and it's an inverse relationship. So the the more force you have, likely the slower you're moving, and the the faster you're moving an implement, likely the lower the force that you're the the lower your maximum force is going to be. So um, if you've ever seen an equation like one over x on a on a graph, that's what it looks like. It's an inverse relationship. Which to no, anyone out no. there that's completely mathematically daft, basically what the man's <laughs> saying is the heavier the object, the slower you're going to move it. It's a law of physics. Correct, correct. So um, I'm going to give you some examples so that they can put that into context, uh, kind of wrap their brain around how fast is really fast and how slow is really slow. Um, well, that's, that's and, golden information. I, that, I, I'm, I'm clinging now, so continue. Okay, so um, before we get to the examples, just keep in mind that the product of force times velocity is power. Um, so if you were to take the value of velocity on the gra- on the graph and the value of force on the graph and multiply them together, that is your power output. And it just so happens that in humans, human muscles, their peak power is somewhere, math- it happens mathematically um, because um, where force and velocity are both relatively high, that's where you get peak power. So something like a, a counter-movement jump with some amount of load, uh, some light load. So We'll, we'll get into the examples now. At the very fast end of the force velocity curve, you have things like throwing. And this is, we're talking about the contraction speed of the muscle itself. Um, that is, the, the muscles that cause the rapid release of an implement, say a javelin, a baseball, a football, uh, anything that you're throwing, um, the muscles that are at the distal end of the, set, the limb that is moving rapidly have a very high velocity of contraction at release. So that's that's about as fast as we can make muscles go uh, under physiologic conditions. That's well, very light load. You use a kinematic sequence to create a whip-like action, and then you get very high velocity, very low force actions. So, so that's, that would be, as an example, that would be like the glutes in a long jump. Yeah, so that that's actually we're going to get there. We're, we're going to dissect down even into pretty small increments across this force velocity curve. So, okay. I, w- I would categorize throwing something very light as ultra fast or very. Um, we'll just call it ultra fast for now. That's the that's the very the extreme end of the force velocity curve. Very fast, uh, something slightly slower than that. A very fast example would be like you said, the muscle contraction. During uh, during sprinting, it's, that's even we're still even faster than the glutes in the long jump. So the ground contacts in sprinting are can be less than a tenth of a second uh, of time spent on the ground. That means you've got half half of a tenth of a second, so five hundredths of a second spent spent in contact with the ground, absorbing the force, and then five hundredths of a second propelling yourself off the ground, uh, contracting the muscles in five hundredths of a second enough to propel a body off the ground. So we're talking very fast relatively low force contractions as compared to something like powerlifting, which is on the far end of the spectrum. So moving slightly slower, things like jumping, aggressive plyometrics where there's there's still, it's still fairly high speed, but there's an increased ground contact time, which means there's increased time to create tension in the glutes, the hamstrings, whatever's going to propel you off the, off the, say, long jump board um, or or if you were to jump off a box and jump up, that's still a, a, a fast contraction. I would categorize something moderately fast. I would categorize a counter-movement jump um, with zero load. 
So you still have counter movement. You're starting tall, dipping down, and propelling yourself off the ground as fast as possible. That would be something that is moderately fast. Uh, getting into where we see peak power, that is the intersection of high forces and high velocities, is the moderate part of the curve, and that's very lightly loaded counter movement jumps, counter movement jump shrugs with weight in, weight in your hand, like a barbell in your hand, maybe a lightweight snatch high pull. Yeah, so that's, now we're, we're right at that intersection of, uh, of moderate, um, move, moving towards something moderately slow, but still very high power. Moderately slow examples would be something like a power snatch, a power clean, a moderately loaded jump squat, so say 30% of your uh, 1RM high bar back squat on your back, and you do a jump squat. So for most athletes, uh, say their high bar back squat max is 400 pounds, 500 pounds, you put 30% on the bar, you can still get off the ground pretty well. Um, that would be... that'd be. Go ahead. Just if you happen to have this piece of information, because it's something that my core audience would relate to very well. Um, in the, I, I hate to even speak their name out loud, but the West Side contingent often expresses things in meters per second. Um, okay. So a lot of my people would uh, would understand that. You're talking about something moving, uh, what, one and a half, two meters per second, I would say? You know, a power clean typically for a six-foot-tall man, you're talking about almost a, you know, a meter and a half, maybe meter and three-quarter total range. Yeah, in just you know, under so a second. You know, so you're, you're talking about pretty pretty quick motion, yes. Yeah, so so in the in the powerlifting realm, we are still we're still moving real fast. Um, right, relative to powerlifting, yes, you, that's yeah. what I'm trying to get to people that might be thinking in powerlifting context because powerlifters have a bit of a self conceit that they're actually quick, and in yeah. relative terms <laughs> to actual practical athletes, they're they're they're, they're heinously slow. Yes, yes, very. And, and I think you'll see that as I continue to break down the curve and see just how far slow that goes. Um, and, and that's an, that's an important consideration when, when applying training, uh, when applying this into a, a training plan. Um, I would, I would categorize things like heavy snatch pulls, heavy clean pulls, near, near 1RM Olympic lifts, uh, full, full Olympic lifts. I would categorize those as slow power movements in, in that there is still uh, appreciable power there. You're still moving a load in under a second, uh, maybe about a second, uh, up to a meter off the ground, um, because the catch position in, the, in those lifts is not much higher than a meter for most people. Those, those are, I would categorize in the grand scheme of things are slow power movements. Um, very slow power movements would be things like, I might call them a light day in powerlifting, um, just because that's the terminology I use. I think other people might call them speed pulls or, or I don't know, pe- yeah. benches for speed squats. Day where you're, yeah, you're yeah in a speed 50 day. 50 or 60% 1 RM moving at the, the highest possible velocity available. Yeah, and I, I think those, those days are critically important. And we'll get, we'll get to that later, but I think obviously whenever you have a lighter weight, we call them light days in my gym, but whenever you have a lighter weight in your hand, it, it's important to be moving that weight as fast as you can possibly move it. Those, those I would consider the powerlifting light days, the speed days, those are slow power events. Those are, that is, that is relatively slow as compared to the fastest, the fastest a human can contract muscles. Um, compare that to a throwing thing and it's just, off the charts slow because yeah, going back to the meters per second thing, throw, throwing you can get up to close to 40 meters per second 
Um, and that just doesn't happen when you've got heavy loads in your hands. Moving to uh, the very high force end of the power lifting or of the of the force velocity curve, you have the power lifts. The this is near your one RM, and this includes some strongman events. I would say that most strongman events are closer to the ver- what I would consider very slow power, closer to your power lifting light days, unless unless we're working up to a one RM in some event. In from my perspective, uh, coaches coaches in the throwing world—that's the world that I come from in track and field—and in the bobsled world, uh, the big mistake that they make is perpetually trying to train. Once they've identified where their need for speed lands on that curve, they perpetually try to train in that zone for 80 to 90 percent of their macro cycle, their annual plan. And so they they spend no time doing general preparation, uh, no time developing muscle mass, um, no time developing peak force capability, uh, and they they spend all their time in say for a bobsledder our our job is to push a 500 pound sled with four guys, so we're pushing a 100 pound sled in a zero zero friction environment. Um, I would categorize that as uh, moderately fast to to fast, so uh, that falls in, in line with aggressive plyometrics because it, it's really a sprint. It's a, we we move near the same speed as an Olympic sprinter because we're running downhill with a sled. And so my my point is that it's not you're not well advised to train perpetually in the zone that you compete in um, because you will never you you'll get great results for about 12 weeks and then you'll get no better results for the rest of time. And I see it in athletes all the time in throwing sports. I see it in sprinting, jumping. Um. Interestingly, that's the prevailing attitude in powerlifting. And and, uh, and even more tragically, um, with the, quote, conjugate, I think Westside's probably the, the, the progenitors of this concept, is where people have really lost the concept of yearly periodization, and they try to periodize everything into one week. They try to be strong, <laughs> fast, and powerful all within one week. Forever, yeah, and, uh, that's a shame. As a as a biologist, it's ludicrous to me. You know, the, yeah, but but nonetheless, continue, and we'll 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 piece all this back together at a late, later point. You can't, yeah, you can't, you absolutely can't, uh, you can't provide overload to any one system if you're trying to work all the systems at once. Um, if you're if you're trying to work muscular endurance and muscular strength and peak power, it just you're you're going to get about X good, and you're going to stay X good for the rest of your life. Um, I actually just had a coach that I'm I'm working with their athlete on a on a nutrition program. A little side story here: send me a program just like you just described it, and there's there's about 16 different components to their training week, and they've got they've got like 30 weeks until their Olympic lifting competition in November or whatever, and they've got every piece of training that they should do from now until November. And you're right, it's in every single week. There's never any focus on one aspect of training, like uh, training for muscle mass, training for turning that muscle mass into something stronger. Uh, there's always a piece of fitness. There's always a piece of strength. There's always a piece of muscular endurance. There's always a piece of... Yeah, um, I, I really don't know exactly how that came to be because I, I, I'm i a little older than you. I, I come from the world where periodization was the high science. It was the... And it was a concept of develop a skill, master a skill, move on to the next 
most important skill, and you know, and then you arrive at your predetermined target. Um, that that's kind of been lost. Yeah, absolutely. Or quote improved little rep. Yeah. Improved. <laughs> yeah. I had a. And that is something I want you to highlight as you do your talk here is um, highlight because I really believe that for specifically my core audience, but probably everybody, seems to not realize how lasting or, or for that matter, transient training effects are. You know, if you train for hypertrophy, that muscle doesn't go away the minute you stop doing that. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. We, we, no, but I, I think that needs to be elucidated by someone other than myself, because apparently okay. people don't believe me. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of one of the most striking comments I got in my PhD was from Meg Stone, who currently holds the shot and discus record in the NCAA. It's been held for thirty five some odd years, and she she had some ridiculous weight room numbers, and she used uh, a block periodization style, call it whatever you want. She trained in four-week blocks with focuses of each of those four blocks uh, for 12 years, and it culminated in, in her her being uh, an elite thrower. And what she said to me was one of the biggest problems with American programming programming right now, training programming, is that people are not willing to focus on one thing and potentially give up and and accept the calculated trade-off of losing another trait for even a short time to reap the benefits of a more important trait right now. And, I mean, I think that's that's stuck with me um, in, in the training that I write for myself. And, and it's certainly true in in science as well because you, you absolutely can't provide overload to a system if, if for, for, say, hypertrophy, if you're also trying to overload the nervous system. The, your recoverability will just you, you'll go down and you won't be able to provide the same hypertrophic overload and vice versa you, you absolutely cannot provide overload to the nervous system if you're also trying to stay in touch with hypertrophy as you said I think as a coach or as an athlete who writes your own, if you write your own programming it's important to decide when in the season or when in the macro cycle it's actually important to possess the abilities that you need in your specific force velocity area and then design the plan to make that happen when you need it, not to have all those abilities try to develop at the same time all throughout the year. It'll be a catastrophe. You'll either get overtrained or, or you'll get subpar results. And in many so cases, it, both. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. So to do that, you have to understand the interplay between volume of training and speed. You have to understand how volume changes myosin isoforms in the muscle. You have to understand how volume changes your neural adaptation and your neural recruitment ability. You have to understand how high force, low speed contractions can change penation angle. Um, and and you have to understand joint angle specificity. Um, if you don't have a handle on how all of those things play together to create a macro cycle, then you may end up with a plan that has hypertrophy as a, some sort of, quote, recovery workout in your peak week. And believe me, I've seen it in track and field, and I wanted to throw up. Um, so I think it's it's important for coaches and athletes to realize that the more volume a person does in the weight room, the more total training volume you can calculate, volume load I think is a good, is a good stock way to calculate it. That is sets times reps times weight on the bar. Um, Which in my vernacular would be T-load, total load. Okay, T-load, yep. 
Um, and some people, I think wisely, some people try to take into account uh, the distance the bar is traveling uh, for each of those. Um, the the total volume, the total the to- T load that you do in the weight room will change the muscle fiber type from a very fast twitch isoform or a fast twitch isoform to whatever is the next slowest in the line of of myosin myosin types. So you've got from slowest to fastest, you've got type one that's your oxidative. Type two A or, t- or rather type two C is sort of a hybrid between, and you can correct me if I'm using these incorrectly since you're the biology guy, but um, as I understand it, type 2C is uh, some sort of intermediary between type 2A and type 1, so slower, more oxidative than type 2A. Yeah. Type, two, type 2A is uh, generally slightly larger um, and is a faster myosin isoform than type 2C, and then at the fastest end in humans, we've got type 2X. Uh, in rodents and other mammals, there's type 2B as well, um, which is faster yet. Uh, and and I'm actually old enough that when I was in school, they were still arguing the X. That was actually not – it was supposed but not truly identified and elucidated. Yeah, yeah. I, I even, even in my undergrad, I think it was just because my undergraduate program was a little bit behind. I remember being told about that there were type 2Bs in humans, and then about a year later in my program, they were like, oh, we taught you wrong. Um, apparently they're called type 2 X's now. Um, yeah. That's since been clarified in my PhD program, and I think I have a better handle on how it all works. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, my so, suspicion is 10 years from now they'll they'll rename and change everything again, but conceptually it doesn't it, it doesn't change that there's a, a gradation of of contractile speeds, and it's predicated correct. on the specific fiber types. So it's pretty correct. straightforward. Yep. So these myosin is uh, is an enzyme. Uh, which has an enzymatic rate, uh, and the faster the enzymatic rate, the faster your muscles are going to be able to contract. So it's important to know that the more volume you do in the weight room, the more volume you do of any kind of training, cardio, uh, I mean, any kind of training that you do for your sport, the fiber types are going to be shifting in proportion to the volume that you do uh, in the direction of being slower. That's simply a response an evolutionary response to uh, presenting a training load. Um, the volume volume will also affect neural adaptation in a similar way, in that if you're doing sets of five, sets of ten, higher volume work, even if you are recruiting maximally, that is, you're pushing yourself, pushing the bar as hard as you can go, moving the implement as fast as you can go, your neural adaptation will chronically become slower, uh, less effective, in the high volume phases, simply because you're presenting a volume, a volume training stimulus. So at the end of a volume phase, you would never expect, obviously, to, you would never expect to be prepared to hit a 3RM, a 2RM, or a 1RM, something like that, or to throw an implement anywhere near your, your maximum. And there, there's been countless anecdotal and, and research verifications that post volume phase, power is depressed. Uh, Part of, part of that also has to do with tenation angle. Which is almost completely unspoken in the world of powerlifting and, and, I, and honestly, in barbell sports in general. Um, yeah, and, just and luckily, luckily in, in powerlifting, it plays to your advantage. Uh, and in strongman, it plays to your advantage. Bodybuilding, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, in Olympic lifting, I think the trade-off of training with the high forces, training with 
training with volume at, at times. The the, pena- the penation angle trade-offs that might occur through strength training are not going to be detrimental uh, in something like Olympic lifting. However, uh, moving to something faster, like like you said, a long jump or a discus throw or a shot put, absolutely the changes in penation angle that occur with high force training are something that need to be considered when uh, applying high force training and high volume training to the macro cycle because it's important to allow for those penation angle changes. Let me tell you how, how it actually works. So w- with high high strength training, penation angle generally changes to a more oblique angle to allow for greater physiological cross-sectional area of the muscle. And what that what that means is you've got more muscle fibers pulling uh, at one time to to create uh, a higher a higher strength a higher force contraction. Now, turning the muscle slightly oblique to the line of pull and getting the greater cross-sectional area is going to reduce contraction velocity. The movement of limb uh, the movement of limb velocity. Uh, downstream from that muscular contraction will be slower. And if you if you can think of a more clear cut way to describe what I'm saying, I'm trying to think it, of a good example. It's very difficult. And interestingly, this is something that um, the, the, somebody whose mind I really respected, a um, man named Arthur Jones. He was responsible for Nautilus equipment and everything that's pretty much not athletic in the world of weight training. <laughs> but uh, the man was a real thinker, and uh, he, he actually didn't even have the, uh, enough educational pedigree to, to talk about penation, but his, his talk was um, talking about angle of pull and how even though cross-sectional area of, say, a bicep would consistently get larger, the production of, of, of lifting ability, you know, the, he measured it in rotary torque because it was all mm-hmm. machines, so he, yeah. he would measure the, you know, the rotary torque at an axis would go down over time in relation to the gains in, in hypertrophy. And he did, deduced that it was because of the angle of pull. As the muscle gets larger cross-section, it gets less efficient at contracting. Yeah, and uh, and on top of that, uh, another, another caveat of that is that uh, when training for hypertrophy, uh, there will be um, there will be a greater uh, proportion of hypertrophy relative to the type, there will be a greater proportion of hypertrophy of the type 1 fibers relative to the type 2 fibers right. when training specifically for muscle hypertrophy. And so of the, of the proportion of your muscle size, now there's a greater percentage of that muscle size that's not, uh, that is, that's not super fast, may not even be super strong as yes, compared so he, if you were training, training for. In, his concept when he talked about that was actually in r- relative terms to his thinking was 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 geared toward what's the maximum hypertrophy a human could achieve, and he, mm-hmm. he deduced that there probably was such a thing simply because the angle of pull at some point would get so ridiculous that you couldn't even practically train. Got it. Yeah, that that would be quite a scenario. <laughs> Nonetheless, that's how the man's mind worked. Take a yeah. take a simple thought and follow it to its absolute absurd conclusion, yep. then draw yep. rational conclusions from that. That's hard to imagine a scenario where the person's sarcomeres added in in uh, let's see uh, in parallel would become so unusable because their angle of pull is so disadvantaged. Um, but I, I suppose that in that I suppose that's possible, probably in super physiologic conditions. Um, that that is possible. Let's see where was 
was I? We were talking about uh, tenation angle and how that how that changes. So if, if you're if you're going to if you're going to apply a training stimulus that you know is going to change penation angle for the worse for your sport, say you're a shot putter, um, and and you know that you need a high velocity contraction of your pectoralis major during the release of a shot put. Um, it's important to know that your penation angle over the course of training 10 months, 10 months out of the 12 months of the year when you're training for muscle size and muscle strength of the pectoralis major doing your bench press, it's important to know that your penation angle may be coming, may be becoming less advantageous for a high speed contraction of your arm during the arm strike of the shot put. Now, some coaches and read between the lines, many coaches, um, take this to the extreme and have decided now in USA track and field to train with uh, low load bench presses uh, and only high velocity contractions so as never to cause any of these these uh, less than desirable penation angle changes because God forbid that in October when nothing matters that the shot putter can't throw as far as they did in, in June or July when it all counts. So we're actually generating a bunch of flat chested weak chest and shoulder throwers? Yeah, unfortunately. So out. obviously the the ones the ones that are throwing far are not doing that. I promise you. Interesting. Um, um so my my point is the trade-off still lies strong for a shot putter still lies strongly in favor of training applying training stimulus that causes hypertrophy and strength training and fiber type shifting all in a negative direction simply because being able to produce higher forces, even if they're a touch slower, is so valuable when accelerating a, a relatively heavy implement, 16 pounds, 7.26 kilograms. It's so important, and and it's important to recognize that when that training stimulus is removed, the high force, the high volume training stimulus, when that's removed, penation angle, penation change, angle change will revert back so long as the training applied causes it. So you can do high velocity contractions, uh, high load eccentric work, re- really any sort of upper body plyometrics to change back the penation angle to what it was before or even a more linear angle, more optimized for speed of contraction. And you'll still hang on to the muscle size and you'll still hang on to the muscle strength because spending four to eight weeks on speed training a year, you're not going to throw away 10 months of muscle size and strength development uh, in eight weeks. Um, well, that, that, it's early in the talk, but I want I want to pause you there, and I want to speak to my core audience through, through you. Um, yeah. So basically what you said is, and, and using a, a shot putter as an example, but it could be anything. It could be a power lifter. It could be anything. Training for hypertrophy and or strength, that means progressively putting more weight on the bar in a fixed rep range, five sets of five, eight sets of something, it's a, it, you know, yep. and making progression, okay, moving as quickly as possible, but obviously not quick in the world of true quickness. Correct. At the completion of that, doing a relatively short duration, speed specific, is sufficient to drive up force production, but not long enough to lose any of the, or, or, or a measurable amount of the accrued size and strength. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's important to to put a length on that time. So and it's important. I 
I, I'm pretty sure I understood you that you mean not at the end of a session, but at the end of a macro cycle or at the end of a mesocycle to work on speed, strength, or power. Um, absolutely, you can you can work on speed, strength, speed, power at the end of a mesocycle and come back better for it when you return to hypertrophy training after your competition um, simply because of a, a potential phase potentiation effect, meaning now that you've spent four weeks or six weeks, I can't imagine going much longer than six weeks for a power lifter. Um, maybe somebody in, in my world might go eight or 12 weeks because speed is so important. But once you've gone four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks of not doing super high force, definitely not doing high volume work for hypertrophy, now when you return to hypertrophy, the benefits of that hypertrophy training that you do are now going to be higher because it's a relatively new stimulus to your body and you'll be able to present a greater overload to the system because your body is now unprepared for that hypertrophy training. And it's funny because in my undergraduate program, professors were telling me that I should always stay in touch with hypertrophy because you wouldn't want to lose your work capacity and such and such. And the point, the point is you'll actually grow bigger muscles by taking time off of hypertrophy because it's important to allow that to be a new stimulus to get that phase potentiation effect. Now, phase potentiation as a training principle or whatever you want to call it ranks low as compared to things like overload and specificity and recovery, but it is an important consideration when designing a macro cycle. And that's, for the bro science folks, that's basically the change it up concept, meaning when you force your body to implement new pathways and new metabolic conditions, it kind of desensitizes the older pathways, making them fresh, new, and viable for a, a new level of work. Is that exactly. sensible? And it's, it's important, it's important, in my opinion, it's important to make those changes in not a subtle way. So, tra training... Ah, interesting, okay. Tra tra especially when returning to hypertrophy. Um, tra training for speed and power before hypertrophy phase is a great way to do that because your volumes in a speed and power phase are by definition going to be low. Um, intensities are going to be off the charts. Uh, your volition will be very high um, and when returning to hypertrophy you will now bring in that high neural recruitment to the hypertrophy phase um, or to the strength phase that follows and you'll have you'll have a capability because of that that higher neural recruitment ability, you'll have a capability to present a greater overload when you return to the phase. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with, any, with that anymore. Now, I, I want to pin you down a little bit here, um, and there's probably going to be some loss in translation because being a bobsledder and a true speed athlete, you're, you're probably in a slightly different realm than most of my listeners and certainly most of my career as a, as a powerlifter. But when you talk about volume, you know, high volume, low volume, Give me a concept of what a hypertrophy volume of training would look like. Um, you just as kind a, of a as a as a power lifter or as as a power lifter or as a bobsledder. As a bobsledder, if you were in a true hypertrophy phase, how many times a week would you squat, and about what would it look like? Okay, um, so let's see. Just to give you some context, so people know where I'm at in my training life cycle. Um, I have been resistance training since I was 16, um, but I didn't know what leg training was until I was like 19. Um, 
I'm 20, how old am I? Oh my gosh. 27 years old. Anyway, I, it's 2016. I started training on what I would consider a fairly well programmed, periodized program when I, let's see, it was 2010. So I've got six years of pretty good periodized training under my belt. That said, um, when I, when I do a hypertrophy program now, um, I, I tend to err on what I would consider fairly low volume hypertrophy because I've accrued or I've accumulated a fairly large amount of muscle mass for my sport. Um, and so it's not absolutely critical that I dig myself a physiological hole of penation angle, recruitment, whatever, when I do hypertrophy. So that All that said, my most recent hypertrophy training program, I was training legs four days a week, uh, two days squatting, two days pulling, um, and my squat volume, I think, in the beginning of the phase, started at uh, somewhere around three sets of ten for back and front squats and ended at the end of the phase at six sets of ten back and front squats. So volume load or T load of, I want to say, 25,000, maybe 30,000 pounds. Interestingly, that's uh, that's that's pretty textbook. I mean, if you read Vershansky's, you know, and Prilpin's charts and that sort of thing, they talk about between 22 and 32,000 pounds per total load per session and about 30 total repetitions uh as a as a target for a standard athlete in the core lift so that's that's yeah. pretty straightforward i buy i buy all of that interestingly say, now relative to powerlifting that's pretty low yeah and i would say if i were a strongman a powerlifter somebody who for who uh muscle size and muscle strength was the critical component of their ability especially somebody who needs to actually gain muscle, and they're not just worried about making body composition changes during a hypertrophy phase. As somebody who's who's seeking to gain an appreciable amount of muscle, I would I I could see taking the the T load up 50% from that. Um, adding either in either in adding adding another lift and doing the same volume with it. Uh, so something like a back squat, front squat, lunge or step up or a, a different variation of a squat. Yeah, I could, I could see going much higher if I were truly, truly committing to hypertrophy. But I, I always, I, I look back at that hypertrophy phase that I just, I just did, and I think, I think back what Meg Stone said that she, she said that American, American programming is we're afraid to, to focus on one thing and accept the trade-offs that come with that one thing, and and really go for that one thing that we're targeting. And I think back to that, did I do that? But. I guess we'll find out when I try out for the national team in, in September. It's funny because I, I actually um, I, I was exposed to a very similar comment by an entirely different person on an entirely different subject, but it, it rings and it, it makes me realize like I had kind of one of those moments like you had. You know, her remark that you know we're not willing to suck up and deal with the consequences. Um, Dr. Fred Hatfield, who was very uh, very influential on me. Uh, great mind in powerlifting, uh, got most of his start from uh, Mel Siff, who was a great American weightlifting coach. But anyway, the, his concept was um, very similarly, uh, get over strong. No matter what your sport is, he said, in the off season, get 50% stronger than you need to be. Then yeah, even yeah. if some of it goes away, you're still too, you're still strong. Yes. Yeah. Get over and strong. That, that, that I, I can't emphasize that enough. Just in the case that there's a team sport athlete listening to this, a, a thrower 
listening to this, um, there's no such thing as too strong. Absolutely there's, not. There's, there's a whole lot of There's too such weak. a thing. There's, yeah, there's a whole lot of too weak. There's, uh, there is absolutely such a thing as too slow. There's such a thing as too stupid of programming to allow for speed to come back after strength training. There's such a thing as too big in some cases, in some sports. There's not such a thing as too strong. There's, there's a whole host of stupid ways to get strong and potentially ruin performance in, in sports where weight classes are important or accelerating your own body weight as an athlete is, is important. If pro, assuming programming is not stupid and you're allowing for speed power adaptations to come at the right time, technical adaptations to come at the right time, there's no such thing as too strong. And I hear that from coaches all the time at the national level in bobsled that you're too strong. And I'm like, you are outside your mind. You don't understand physics. You don't, don't understand physics, physics apparently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like, we're, our job is to accelerate an object. The, to accelerate an object, you have to have force. Force is strength. And I try to explain that to people that you can continue to get stronger through neural adaptations, through, through intelligent training programming. You can continue to get stronger without necessarily without necessarily adding size or without necessarily compromising speed. Um, yes, it takes a long time. It takes a lot longer to get strong. For a sport that requires speed, it takes a lot longer to get strong in an intelligent way than it would if your sport didn't require any speed at all. Then we can just hammer volume and and then hammer neural adaptations and not worry about penation angle, not worry about uh, myosin-type changes. Yeah, okay, I can step off the podium now, or off, off the soapbox. No, I, I, I agree with you entirely. I remember specifically Dr. Fred Hatfield saying that the stronger you are, the more time you can spend on technical skill and Absolutely. You know, neurological recruitment, basically getting faster. You know, yeah. it, it, to, to him, it was, it was essentially a concept of money in a bank. If I get strong now, I don't have to worry about that when it's time to get fast. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's and beautiful. It, yeah, it seemed very simple and, and streamlined in my mind. Um, now, I do have a whole bunch of questions, and I don't know where they fit in relative, relative terms to what more you have to say. So I'm just going to fire them out there and let you okay. sort through them as needed. My first That's question um, is speed, in my mind, this is kind of a question by way of statement, uh, is largely a genetic issue. It's yes. only yeah, moderately adaptable within the individual. So my question is, in the world of powerlifting, where people, relatively speaking, aren't particularly athletic, I'm a great example of that, is powerlifting is essentially the only thing that could qualify as a, quote, sport that I could ever do. Just uncoordinated, slow, just <laughs> very unathletic. My, co yeah. my question is, for even someone such as myself, how malleable is speed? How much of it could I rationally achieve? I think I think that speed. I, I think it's important for people to understand that speed is as much about what you don't do as what you do do. Adaptations that that happen to training, most in most cases, are actually they compromise physiological speed, the speed at which your muscle contracts. So any any volume of training at all applied to a body is going to cause myosin isoform 
conversion to a slower isoform. Now, there's no situation in sport where speed of movement, speed of contraction is the only thing that matters. In sport, you're always moving against some amount of mass, whether that's your body that you're sprinting with, whether that's a shot put that you're accelerating, and also your body that you're accelerating to then accelerate the shot put, or whether that's a 300-kilo squat, the um, when considering speed, uh, you always have to take into account what mass are we moving for speed. So um, in the case of a power lifter, the speed that they need to get out of the hole of the squat or to, to get the bench, the bar off their chest, the the speed that they need is is really quite slow and in that sense, it's really how it's really rate of force development that we're after. And rate of force development uh, is quite trainable if if an athlete is allowed to reduce volume substantially and is encouraged to train at the highest levels of volition. So, if if an athlete is seeking to change their speed in the powerlifting world for the better, then um, really, number one, get stronger. Uh, number two, reduce volume like crazy for three weeks out of a meet um, so that so that myosin isoforms can convert as much back towards type 2 Xs as possible with sufficient load to maintain your strength going into the meet. Um, so the, the changes that you're, you're looking for going into the meet, assuming that's when you're trying to be fast, you're, you're trying to ramp up the nervous system for the meat, and you're trying to allow, this is where doing nothing is better than doing something, you're trying to allow your muscles to revert back to the myosin isoforms that they had before, and which is a higher concentration of type 2 Xs. If you, if you wanted to be the fastest power lifter you could, you would sit on the couch for four weeks before your meet. Problem with that is you'd have no neural recruitment. You'd probably have a drop off in muscle size, and you'd have a huge drop off in strength. But you'd be fast in a physiological now, sense. Now, I have, now, now that immediately brings me to a question, and I ask this um, with, with 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 all due delicacy, by virtue of you being a WADA enforced athlete and all of that happiness that I won't even tackle because I'll start to stammer and curse. Yep. <laughs> but now, yep, might that be a situation where? exogenous hormones play a very powerful role by virtue of supporting that hypertrophy and strength in a reduced period of in a, a period of reduced volume yeah so the, there there's twofold things going on so let's i'm going to talk about the neural the neural component of it uh, and then the the how this applies to training and how how exogenous drug use might apply to a powerlifter's training and how how you would make different, potentially different training training decisions with the knowledge that exogenous drugs are present. One of the issues that a powerlifter is going to deal with in doing nothing, allowing for as many or doing as low a volume of training of training as possible, allowing for speed to return as much as possible, allowing for those myosin changes to happen. One of the things that they're going to deal with is a potential, especially if they're near their genetic ceiling, um, a potential decline in muscle mass. Uh, and if you lose muscle mass, eventually it's going to catch up with you, and you're going to lose muscle strength. So it, it's a it's a balance as you approach the meat of 
losing very little muscle mass and ramping up the nervous system to hit new peak forces uh, at the meet. It's the longer the longer you stay in a very reduced volume training environment, the greater the chances are for reduced muscle mass, but also the greater the chances are for higher speed and potentially higher peak forces if the muscle mass doesn't fall off the table. That's where the exogenous drugs can come in. Um, if if a person is taking anabolics, they can potentially stay in a very low volume state of training for, to be honest, I'm not an expert in exogenous drug use, but I would say three weeks is would be fine for somebody not using drugs. Uh, I would say 12 weeks is possible. Um, yeah, I, depending I, on if you're taking, if you're yeah, taking, I, I, I can tell you just as an example, I was in a horrible accident, not, not but a few years ago. I was literally wheelchair bound, was completely unable to get to the gym. And, uh, I did maintain a, 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 a let's call it a little rabbit ear, a support dose of androgen just so I didn't wither to nothing. And yeah. I, I was, I was surprised to find that, you know, my max bench press pre-injury was about 440, and uh, I did uh, well over, th- I did, I think, 365. The first workout back with no, with zero, zero training for almost eight months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you maintained. Yeah, so, that, I mean, really, and probably the most of that diminishment was really just skill and uh, probably just, just <laughs> plain nerve, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah. And I so think that I, highlights. I, mean, I, could, I could speak from very firsthand, you know, knowledge that yes, d- drugs do support muscle mass. It's not a question, folks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that that highlights another issue. Uh, one of the, one of the probably the most frustrating things for me as an athlete, um, and for the record, the, the reason it's frustrating is because I don't take advantage of it, um, <laughs> and I see and I see athletes from other countries take advantage of it, and that is. The, in a speed power sport, one of the hardest things to do is to maintain muscle size during the off season without putting yourself in a huge hole in the speed department. Uh, and you can get away with so much more just sticking into your force velocity range that you operate in if you're on drugs because they'll hold on to all your muscle mass for you. You never have to train hypertrophy and you get to come into the season not in any sort of physiological hole with all the muscle mass and all the speed. Um, and it basically, they basically eliminate the need for long general prep phases for speed power athletes. Um, I, I would say for probably all athletes, but yeah, I, I, I buy that entirely. Um, yeah. absolutely. Um, it, in the realm of questions that I just, just random, well, not random questions, but just questions, maybe not necessarily ideally targeted to the moment in the conversation. Um, so, so hypertrophy is relatively long-lasting trait once developed, and I'll lump strength along with that. It's relatively long-lasting, even in a drugless environment, in a, quote, natural environment, although I hate to call weight training of any kind natural because it isn't. Uh, creatures in the, in the wild do not lift weights. Um, make that argument all the time, and people just look at me rather odd. Um, but my question is how... How transient is the actual speed? Like if, if they say a power lifter broke into, you know, a period of very high force production, you know, reduced load, reduced volume, maximum volition, maximum, quote, bar speed, and even, let's say, a layer of plyometrics, some, some depth jumps or something, how quickly would they achieve, quote, 
momentary maximum force production, and then how transient is that at the cessation of that block? Um, I would say I would say that within two weeks you're going to see a largely improved um, largely improved speed when volume drops off the table, and within three or four weeks, especially in the powerlifting world where where the definition of speed is is really higher neural recruitment against against a heavy load. I would say within three to four weeks you're going to have probably tapped out the benefit of training with something like plyometrics um, and and drastically reduced volume. in In a world in a world like bobsled, I would go go as far as eight to twelve weeks um, because really wow we because we would we would now how much of that we, is we would take your genetically predisposed more predisposed towards speed. Do, do you think that has a component there or not Not so much? I don't know that it does. Um, I would say I would say we're just more accepting of the trade-off of potentially losing muscle mass and even potentially losing maximal strength uh, in the critical phases of, like, world championship prep. Um, I would say that letting letting maximal strength go to the wind and letting hypertrophy go to the wind just to optimize speed of contraction um, might be a worthwhile trade-off at a world championship scenario. Um, and then you'll come immediately back to hypertrophy and strength training like the day after world championships if you know what you're doing. Um, now, as far as how long it lasts after the training has ceased and after the volume has decreased, in most cases, a person should probably go back into volume training after a phase like that, in, in my opinion. And so I would say within a week of doing volume training, your speed is going to have gone down dramatically, and within two weeks, it's gone. There's no more. So it is, relatively speaking, the the actual volitional, neurological, isoformic component is very transient. It's, it's, it's quickly adaptable and then quickly diminishable. I would say it's quickly diminishable primarily because those are the training decisions that you're going to make because after a peak competition, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to continue training for speed. Uh, okay. I can accept that. So it's not so much that it's it's quickly diminishable, it's quickly damageable. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's a better language. We can go with that. Yeah. So, so any training that's not that is immediately going to be a decrement to that yeah. Yeah, to that speed. Okay, that, that that's very that's very rational and, and acceptable. Um, what I'm trying to I'm speaking between the lines, kind of past you to my core audience, who are mostly strength athletes, mostly powerlifters and strongmen. And basically, yeah. what this is sounding like is um, th- that true contest preparatory window for a powerlifter is is pretty small. It's pretty short. I mean, you're, you're telling me yeah. that probably something on the order of six weeks, you're going to get about as fast as you could possibly be relative to the loads lifted. Yeah, uh, and I would say that potentially that could get longer if if drugs are at play um, because because you don't have to worry about the trade-off of potentially losing muscle mass. Um, Agreed. So so a, a natural powerlifter probably could prep for something in four to six weeks, and yeah. a drug-using yeah. athlete probably you're still only talking 10 to 12. Yeah, I would agree. And that ironically fits rather classically with the Eddie Cohn, Fred Hadfield kind of, you know, USPF powerlifting periodized models with with basically 10-week contest preps with uh, strategically diminished volume and, good to know. Good to know. and strategically elevated um, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, lo- load on a bar. So that's, yeah. that's kind of validating what's basically already been, been, been elucidated by, by practical application. Awesome. That's good to hear that, uh, the speed power world that I come from is in line with the, the strength power, strength speed world that you're in. Well, it's probably really the other way around. I mean, powerlifting's always been maybe not as voodoo ridden as bodybuilding, but, but probably a considerably less scientific endeavor than track and field type sports. Um, basically my concept on that being, you know, a prodigy of University of Arizona and a relatively big budget. My thinking on that is whatever's worth more is probably more science rich. Follow the money. You would, you would think, and I, I would say, yeah, pro- you're probably right. Um, but, but I wouldn't put track and field too high on a pedestal. Yeah, I, I've, I, I have, I have the highest level certification offered by USA Track and Field and throwing the, the USA Track and Field level three certification. Uh, well, and it exciting. was, fr- it was from the horse's mouth at that certification that we should be, yeah, training with, Basically ignoring the general prep phase and the development of muscle mass because we wouldn't want to sacrifice speed at any time during the year. And it was really, really disappointing to go to that and know that their recommendations clashed so hard with what I was learning in my doctoral education, which I trust to a much greater degree because, uh, well, there's just a whole host of reasons for that. But yeah, Dr. Stone and Science is science. Yeah, science is science. Yeah. Anyway, there's a reason. You perform a test and then you write it down somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you can learn from 50,000 other scientists' tests by reading their articles, but yeah. But no, oh, that's, that, that's interesting. Now, I do have some some powerlifting specific questions, um, and, okay. and I, I want you to just just answer. For sure. instance, these kind of training programs where you know we've got quote speed days. What's your thoughts on that? Is in a in a quote off season you know, accruing strength, maybe not necessarily hypertrophy, because most most powerlifters are probably bigger than they need to be, really. And I mean that both in terms of muscle mass and fat mass. But yeah. I'll, I'll be kind. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there, this idea where in the midst of a in the midst of an quote off season, you've yeah. got guys pulling almost insignificant loads, doing deadlifts with 50% of their, 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 their max at high velocity. Do you think that's appropriate or relevant or, or No, I've often, I've often wondered the same thing. I, so I would still program what I would call light days, but my version of a light day is 10 to 15% less than your working day uh, earlier in the week, not, not 25 to 40%. And I have now, a, I have now a that's list. really predicated just on accrued uh, fatigue. That's not really yeah, exactly. because right. of some magic. that the, the load is reduced so something magic happens. It's just on the third squat day of the week, you're fucking tired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, okay. It's, I, it's, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. And, get, I, yeah, and I apologize yeah. for swearing. I, I know that you're a no, kinder, no. gentler soul than I. Um, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I, I, I get it. It's just hard for me. I'm looking hard at this, brother. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but so I, I would that say is, that reduction as the week goes on is really just uh, relevant to fatigue and t- total training you know, repercussions. Yes. Yes, it's, it's exactly. It's for fatigue management, and it's for still presenting a load to the body that it could be hypertrophic, it could be strength related, but it's uh, 
yeah, it's it's about managing fatigue, and it's it is an opportunity to work on technique as well because if you're going to try to, um, you couldn't possibly work on optimal technique while performing a working load again the second or third time a week if you really pushed yourself in the first time of the week. Um, so it's it's an opportunity to work on appropriate technique at potentially a slightly higher velocity, but we're not we're not dipping down into any sort of what I would call speed or power training. You should always be moving the bar with maximum volition, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you should reduce the bar load by thirty or forty or fifty percent to work on speed six months out of a competition because you're wasting your time. Yes. I personally and this this talk isn't meant to be my thoughts personally, but it, it seems relevant here. My thoughts personally is a strength, you know, rabbit ear strength athlete, which in my mind, powerlifters really are the strength athlete. Uh, yes, Olympic absolutely. lifters, they, they want to call themselves strength athletes, but it's really more <laughs> about speed and technique. Um, yeah. You know, really the only people that really demonstrate the strength potential of the human genome is, is in my mind, powerlifters. Yep. And, I don't think there's ever an appropriate time to be training with 50% max. It's, it's just that's almost too light for bodybuilding. Yeah, yeah. So if you're, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of a time where during a macro cycle I can find a rationale just to play devil's advocate, but uh, um, I'm, struggle, I'm struggling to think of a time. Maybe post-injury. <laughs> yeah, yeah, post injury. Yeah. Just had knee surgery. That might, you know, I, okay. Yeah. But I mean, 50% yeah, load 50%. is really. Really not. Fifty percent load is is you you'd be hard pressed to get hypertrophy from it unless I you mean, were training with absurd just, volumes. Yeah, I was just gonna say I could literally do. Let me just do the math real quick. Right now, my max squat's about seven hundred. At three fifty, I could literally <laughs> do forty repetitions. I was gonna say thirty, thirty-five. Yeah, you know, thirty <laughs> yeah. plus, probably forty if I really ground my teeth. Like, that's yep. not relevant to powerlifting, <laughs> ever. Yep. And this idea yep. of, well, I'll do 20 singles as quick as I can, that's even dumber. Why don't you just Especially, get up and down from a chair? Why don't you just <laughs> sit in a dinner chair and jump up and down or something? Especially if you are a weight class athlete, uh, presenting that kind of ridiculous volume load at such a low weight is just promoting unequal hypertrophy between type 1 and type 2 fibers, and the more type 1 hypertrophy you get means the more you're filling out your weight class with less than specific muscle fiber for what you're competing in. I, I Absolutely. And that's a technical way to say what I've been saying for a very long time is, yeah, most of what powerlifters are doing presently is literally the worst possible thing they could be doing. They're making themselves <laughs> bigger and slower in an attempt yeah. to get fast. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Now, now I want to play super devil's advocate and pick your brain. And can you? You may not even be aware, being a real athlete outside of the world of powerlifting, <laughs> but can you ever conceive of a reason to use um, devices or apparati that alter the strength curve? And I'm referring to like bands and yeah, yeah, I know what you're getting at. Um, can, can you can, I honestly? Would say, and again, I, if you can, I'd love to hear it because okay, yeah, I, I'll, because I'll I say would this. because it, it would make <laughs> me keep my head on the wall a little less than I presently do. But can you think of any reason that would be relevant to the production of or sustaining of speed? I'll I'll give you a roundabout answer. Uh, I have programmed training programs for 
I don't know, a couple hundred athletes in my short short career. Um, and I have not once used a band or a chain. And my specific reasoning for not doing that uh, is because I think I haven't found a place yet where the calculated trade-off of using those to overload a certain range of motion uh, is in favor, oh, to not only to overload a certain range of motion, but also do it while also while doing the full range of motion lift. I haven't found a place where that makes sense within my macro cycle. And I, I've looked, I've considered, and it, it just never, the calculated trade-offs are never in favor. And maybe I'll, I'll never do it for the rest of my life, but maybe I'll find, find a place in time somewhere where some athlete I think needs that. But I haven't found that scenario yet. And, and the reason I, I, I bring up like where it might fit in a, in an annual cycle is in, in say a throwing sport or a, even, even in strongman, um, joint angle specificity, uh, and training at the angle that, at the joint angle at which you compete, uh, is important. And it is important to provide overload at the joint angles at which you compete. The, the caveat is when you are providing overload at the specific joint angles at which you compete, that should be in your competition prep period. And if, if you have a sport where your joint angle of competition is relatively open at the knee, say, for example, like a sprinter, um, they never bend their knees more than 90 degrees when they're producing force and probably never much more than 60 degrees of flexion when they're producing force. The time of year where you need to overload those high-end joint angles is also the time of year where you're trying to let myosin isoforms and neural recruitment and penation angle changes all happen. And training at full depth or training the full range of motion while also overloading the top end range of motion makes no sense because then you're blunting all those other adaptations. Um, in the case of a power lifter, the overload needs to happen at the joint angle that's specific to the hardest part of the movement. And that's not the band or the chain pull or squat or bench. Right. It, it's, it's literally at depth. And I, and I, I will connotate because I can hear, I can hear people right now just huffing and puffing and, and, and wheezing in their, their, you know, their overweight powerlifting shells out there. I can hear it. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking, okay. I, I'm always, listen up, I'm always talking about raw lifting. Okay. In a powerlifting suit, there is distortion of the human strength curve because Absolutely. of 10 mile strengths and, I, I won't even consider that because to me it's just off the table. I just I just simply won't talk about it because one I don't care about it and two I, I literally I uh, I can say this out loud because it's my radio show people. I just don't even respect it. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> so you guys can do whatever you want at any angle wrapped in whatever you want to wrap yourselves in. I'm talking about people that are actually people. So. Got it. <laughs> Anyway, without the assist of some mechanical device, got it. Yeah, exactly. That, that that does change things, and I do think a lot of the practices, and, and I'm talking more more to you than to my audience. I do think some of the practices in modern powerlifting are relevant to the use of gear because their use of gear has gotten so ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you, the gear is reducing the load at the sticking point lower exactly. or it's making the sticking point higher, then yeah, absolutely train the top exactly. end. Exactly. That's motion. what it's doing is it's, it's driving, mechanically driving people out of the hole and they're not forced to m muscularly make up the difference until literally the half squat position. You yeah. know, so you, I've literally, I've witnessed this with my own eyes. I've literally witnessed people just half squat year round and then take PRs to depth simply because the suit's doing the bottom half. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I don't, I don't endorse that, but I've, I've watched it. I know it happens. You know, I've personally yeah, trained with a guy that was a 800 pound bencher in a bench shirt, and he literally could do fewer reps at 405 raw than I could. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. just, you know, I, I mean, just don't even talk about that as a subject. That's very um, interesting. Now, <laughs> I, um, I don't know if you have more that you want to dissertate or not, and you're certainly welcome to, but one of my last kind of question slash ideas is with this concept of diminish volume, elevate, you know, actual bar speed, maybe implement plyometrics, basically change from a hypertrophy strength to a neurologically tuned training paradigm. Is there any uh, nutritional recovery dare I say pharmacological, because there are pharmacological agents outside of banned anabolics. Is, is there yeah. anything that should happen in concert with that? Uh, or is that too big and is that another talk? Nutritionally, uh, I would say, I mean, obviously when you're in a phase of reduced volume, you've got, regardless of anabolics or not, you've got reduced potential for muscle retention, and so it's important to make, make sure your protein is um, up near... Uh, I guess it would be close to 2 to 2.1 grams per kilo of, of protein per day just, just simply because you would want to reduce chance for um, reduce chance for catabolism to happen during the high, the high intensity low volume interesting you picked that number but that, that's, that's cool I'm good with that I would say carbohydrate content unless you want to get fat should probably go down in the low volume training phases um, obviously important for neurological drive uh but i mean if you're if you're doing singles all day your your overall glycogen use is pretty low as compared to if you're doing hypertrophy training so i mean real simple carbs should probably go down fat contents of the diet should probably go up a bit um just to make up the calories that aren't there because of the carbs um interesting interesting i personally i wouldn't even modulate that but that that's interesting that you would say that i i tend to i tend to discount the glycotic impact of training with a barbell when I think okay. of glycotic, you know, load, I really, I'm thinking of running, you know, or, or cardiovascular involvement. I, I just, I wonder, I wonder, and you, you can refute me at any point, I just wonder, even the hardest barbell workout, is that really particularly glycotic? Is that really burning a lot of carbohydrates? Actually, um, I would say yes. Yes, in hypertrophy training, um, it's, I would say not a whole ton of your liver glycogen is being used. Um, but yes, in, I, I think there's pretty clear literature on, uh, glycogen depletion during, uh, high volume, moderate to high load resi resistance training. I mean, I can think of a study in, uh, specifically, I can't remember who it was by, but they, they did leg extensions, like something like eight, eight sets of six leg extensions and then tested, uh, vastus lateralis glycogen depletion. And I think they depleted muscular glycogen levels, uh, by 40% in the vastus lateralis. Really? Through, um, through eight sets of six, uh, leg extensions. Now obviously, working, working eight sets, eight sets of six leg extensions is gonna use less, less glycogen, um, than, I don't know, five by ten of multiple quad dominant exercises or... Right. Um, so I, I would say it's important to re replenish the glycogen, uh, during a post-workout, but, um, yeah, nutrition, nutrition might be a whole nother talk. Sure. Um, uh, as far as, as far as the drug use, 
I mean, I, I when I say stuff, drug use, stuff. I'm even considering, you know, caffeine and any, yeah. anything that's, which actually is banned to a degree, but, you know. yeah. I'm actually not sure what degree that is, because I, let me tell you, <laughs> the bobsled team takes a lot of caffeine. I, I think, uh, I, I think they test some amount, uh. Yeah, there, there is a, a millimole content somewhere that is, is a faux pas, but it's, it's pretty hard to do. Strangely, that only shows up in in hundred meter running and hippodrome cyclists are the only. If you look at the fail, <laughs> annual failures, they're the only people failing for caffeine. Huh. I wonder. I have to. It makes me wonder how much they're taking. Um, uh, actually, I can uh, off the air. I can tell you a, a, a hippodrome cycle story. Um, okay. I, I, dare, I, I dare not say it on the air. It's it's too much. Okay. okay. <laughs> but but I actually I, I have firsthand knowledge, and it, it's a whopping. And I don't use that word lightly. A whopping yeah, amount. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. Um, and the root delivery is, is 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 puckering. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty common among bobsled athletes to use anywhere from 400 to 1,000 milligrams of caffeine um, for a, a, a competition day. Um, that's two two runs with 30 minutes back to back. Uh, or with 30 minutes between the two runs. That's a pretty standard number, I think, for damn near every athletic endeavor. I, yeah. I, think, I don't think there's anybody yeah. out there that's getting ready to do something that doesn't, you know, swallow too vibrant in a pot of coffee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, interesting. Um, that's really, really cool and interesting stuff. Do you, is there more you want to give me, or is that is that the, the bones of where we're at? Um, I, I would like to talk about one last thing uh, regarding... Differentiating, uh, bet- differentiating training decisions for various level of, uh, various experiential level of athletes. The trade-offs, the trade-offs change, uh, the magnitude of each trade-off in training changes the greater or, or with, with the level of experience that the athlete has. So a highly trained advanced athlete or elite athlete in my world might be five to 10 years of training now. And a truly elite athlete probably has more than 10 years of training with weights. As far as, as far as training decision making, once, once an athlete's trained for five or six years, I'm not certain that the decision making changes that much uh, between a, a six year athlete and a 10 year athlete. For example, an athlete who's trained for six years or ten years with weights is going to have a baseline level of strength and is going to have a, a maximum amount of muscle that they've developed over the course of their career. And it's probably going to be pretty appreciable if they've been training on, a, on an intelligent training program. That said, and, and you hinted at it earlier, that these these characteristics, hypertrophy and strength, are not highly transient characteristics. They don't they don't diminish. Um, they don't diminish really rapidly. Um, so for a highly trained subject, a highly trained athlete, you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to train for speed and withhold hypertrophy training, withhold like peak maximal strength training, um, for longer than you should for, uh, for a lesser trained athlete. So like I might call a young training age athlete, somebody with two or three years weight training experience who's competing in powerlifting. They're not going to be very good, obviously. But the my point is, the the trade off may lie in not training for speed at all in powerlifting when you've got somebody who's only been training for two, three years. 
in my that's opinion. so contradictory to the common dogma of today. Um, I, yeah. I happen to agree with you, but it's that's incredibly counter counterculture to the mo- to the moment. And, and it's counterculture, unfortunately, to to youth training. Uh, that's that's what I do as a business. I don't think I even mentioned that at the at the onset of this, but I I, I run a business um, in in Washington, and we we train young athletes. We we train athletes who've never touched weights before, and all of our competitors, and we live in a, we live just outside a really affluent area, and there's a lot of competitors who sell the bells and whistles training, the bands, the, the hurdles, the chains, the, the this and that, the newest thing you see, and whatever stupid catalog you get in the mail as a fitness professional. Yeah, speech, whatever, whatever stupid garbage is out there, and they, that's what they market and that's what they sell, and it's a shame because the only people that should ever consider using anything that is even close to gimmicky is somebody who spent five or six years in a weight room just going up and down with a barbell. Agreed. So somebody who's overstrong. Overstrong, yeah. Once you have developed a baseline level of strength, and I'm not talking about NSCA baseline level of strength where <laughs> you can you can squat one or 1.5 times your body weight, like that's not strong. That's that's like. You are now allowed to squat without supervision. <laughs> like, um, in, in my world, agreed. Yeah, that that you're yeah, right. I think a base uh, for for a an athlete, a baseline level of strength would be a double body weight squat. Once you have a baseline level of strength, then we can start talking about a little bit more fancy programming where we might get away from some strength training, do some plyometrics, take a little extra recovery, try to optimize neural drive and speed and all, and all this and that. The trouble is that's not what sells to anybody. And so I think it's probably pervasive in powerlifting too that what sells is what gets in the magazines and that's the chains, that's the super optimization plyometric this and that. And it's, it's a lot simpler than that to be honest. Like, yeah, that's, that's what I had to say is beginner athletes, even moving into a competition, don't need to think about withholding volume from training because for them, strength and hypertrophy can be transient because it hasn't been around for so long. Um, and for them... Which is funny because great... it's such a fundamental biological comp- concept known as homeostasis. Yeah. If you're big enough, long enough, your body gets the hit and stays there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that's like literally, I'm not being sarcastic while I am, but I mean... In, in in reality, I'm not. That's like seventh grade science, folks. <laughs> yeah, seriously, you should have learned that in the seventh grade. Yep, that's really true. I never thought of it that way, and that's that tickles me. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So, something that I like to do with my show is um kind of recap and bullet point. Okay. And something you didn't say it per se, but with with your concept of yearly planning and, you know, if you're really bright, and I'll just leave that out there as saying that, multi-year planning. One of the early concepts that really is going to have to be tackled here is diagnostically determining what you need and what's relevant to your sport and then plugging it into, you know, a long-term periodization. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And... Fortunately for my kind of core people, strongmen and powerlifters, speed, relatively speaking, is really by far the lesser component. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. And for, I was, I was going to say for a, for a training plan in general, speed, even for a speed athlete, is the lesser component for many years of development. 
that's a great point. That's that that I'm glad you said that out loud because that that is true. Um, and for a number of reasons that you elucidated in the talk, speed. For one thing, it's 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 more transient. It's quicker to to actualize it. Yep. Um, so you know, in, in terms of volume of blocks or you know total time on the calendar, even if you need it desperately, it's still a relatively small window of time. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So so that that's really relevant. And then. Again, talking to kind of my audience and maybe even the few shades above my audience, like the the, the couple hammer throwers and the couple uh, you know shot putters and that those kind of people that do listen, and some we have some martial artists that listen to this too. I know that I get some feedback from them, but even those people, it's still only kind of a smattering, a smidgen of true speed relative to Absolutely. you know to, yeah. to the Olympic caliber you know sprinters and what have you. Yeah, I mean. Speed is probably one of the most over-focused on elements of training in in every sport. Yeah, I, I think strength strength should come a long, long way before speed uh, in a macro cycle and in a multi-year plan and in a, a career plan. Excellent, excellent. That that's I I I, I was c- completely prepared for you to dissent with a lot of my core beliefs, but in, in reality, you, you really didn't. You reinforced an awful lot of what I thought, and um, I, I'm really uh, kind of gratified to know that I even know more about your world than I thought I did. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm yeah. really excited. <laughs> yep. That and that's exciting. It's good, it's, good to hear, it's good to hear that, that yeah, there's, there's other people out there in this small – it sometimes feels like an isolated world where I'm shouting from the rooftops that – you just need to be stronger. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I do have one kind of powerlifting-specific question that I want you to tackle, if you can and if you will. Okay. Do, do you follow my, my, my thought? So ask, ask that question one more time. Well, just, just a tail, tail bit there. It, it's not exactly a question so much as, you know, we, we've just spent an hour talking about force production and the, the the acquisition of speed and all of these things, but I'm kind of playing devil's advocate and pointing out that true powerlifting, which is the absolute expression of strength, is actually done rather slowly, sometimes even absurdly slowly. Mm-hmm. So my question is, can you justify why speed training actually becomes relevant to that end product? I would say, uh, yes, speed, not necessarily speed of contraction. That is the, the, the myosin filaments moving by themselves quickly because that just doesn't happen, but speed of recruitment. So in, in, in NSCA terms, that's rate of force development. Your ability to achieve a maximum force quickly, that is important because achieving a maximum force quickly allows for a slightly greater acceleration of the bar that might move it through a critical moment of the lift at a slightly higher velocity to get it actually through that critical moment of the lift and become a successful lift. It's not that the velocity of contraction will ever be fast. It's not even that you really need to train under high velocities of contraction, but you need to train to recruit rapidly and maximally uh, for for maximal neural recruitment and not necessarily speed of contraction. Is that is that clear? It it, it, 
it is to me, I'm wondering if it is to my listeners, and I'm going to answer that same question the way I answer it, um, and, and, and I, I mean that not as any disrespect to your answer, because I, no, of course. I, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, I tend to, I tend to, as a rule, think I'm talking to a relatively uneducated in terms of science and biology crowd, so my answers are usually worded considerably different. Okay, um, let's hear it. If you think of a muscle as all of these fibers, you know, you, you cross-section it and you look at it, and it's all these little ropes. It's a number of wires going from point A to point B. This maximum initiation talk, this maximum recruitment talk, is the concept of getting voltage through as many of those wires instantaneously as possible. Yep. Yes. It's it's sending voltage through the maximum amount of wires, sending the message the most number of times, as it were. Yep. That it's way. Not the, yeah. Right. It's not so much that the message arrives quickly; it's that the message arrives in mass. Yeah, and it's not that the 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 wires all move quickly either. It's that they all they all move. In concert. Uh, in, in concert and with early onset initiation. I don't know how else to say exactly. it. Exactly. That was something Dr. Fred Hadfield impressed upon me is no matter how fast, no matter how slow, you only have a certain window to complete the task before enzymatic pathways or whatever breaks down. So the quicker you can initiate the action, the more likely you are to get to the finish line inside of your time frame. Yep. Absolutely. So, Okay, that, that's I, I, that was kind of a roundabout way to get to that final point that even though powerlifting is really a damn slow sport, it ultimately comes down to doing it as quickly as humanly possible, which right. is yeah, that's, that's speed. Really true. So that, that's it's interesting stuff, and I love talking to people on the kind of the other side of the wheel as it spins. I really I really do find that entertaining. <laughs> yeah, this is this has been fun stretching outside my box as well. Yeah, and I, I hope the listeners took took up a good portion of that because there's really, really valuable information in there, both from a training point of view and and I, I honestly I hate to sound so so uh, almost mystical, but from a positioning point of view, powerlifters really need to get off of their horse and realize that they're not fast, they're not athletic, <laughs> and, 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 and and appropriately so, they don't need to be. They're 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 striving yeah. for the wrong shit. You're right. You're absolutely right. So that I, I really, I really hope that some of that came through there in, in a in a science sciencey way that people can absorb. That, that's really good stuff. Um, so with things winding down, is there anything you want to say? Any any thoughts? Any ideas? Any marketing? You want to tell people how to find you? Uh, how they can pay you? Like anything? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if if people want to look me up, uh, my wife and I run run a business called Accelerate Sport. Accelerate spelled uh, like Microsoft Excel. Uh, a little play on words there. Um, and yeah, we're based in Snohomish, Washington, and we train we train young kids um, to be, again, being cliche, bigger, faster, and stronger. And mostly we just train them to be bigger and stronger, and the speed comes from that. Yeah, that's, that's about it. And then I, I also work for uh, Renaissance Periodization, which is a nutrition company who's got, and they've got thousands and thousands of clients and we don't need any more so you guys can just stay <laughs> that's uh, horrible yeah. but horrible <laughs> um 
but no, I really, I really enjoyed this. This was fun, uh, going outside my box and hearing, it, it's fun hearing your take on powerlifting as well and how, and, and, and how powerlifting people might view themselves, uh, as, as fast or that they have a high need for speed. It's, it's interesting because in, in my, in my studies, um, and application, powerlifters are slow, very slow and they, they need absolutely, they need speed of recruitment. Um, but the velocity of contraction is very different from my world. So this has just been fun. Yeah, as well it should be. That's the, the kind of the interesting point is uh, I, I think people probably didn't pay attention enough in high school physics, much in physical <laughs> science. <laughs> yeah. That's that's good stuff. That that really is interesting. And and um you know, I really uh, I really enjoyed the talk. I really appreciate you know, I mean you're you're a busy guy, you're an Olympic caliber athlete. Um I really appreciate you coming on here, talking to me, talking to my listeners, um, giving us an entirely different perspective. And I'd like to publicly give you the opportunity to come back anytime and literally talk about anything that interests you. Um, you know, this is just Thank you. as for somebody of your caliber and your acumen, it's open forum. You ever you know need to talk about nutrition, anything, bring it on. We would love to hear it. Thank you. That's that's awesome. So with that said, Alex. Mr. Alex Harrison, Olympic caliber athlete, PhD candidate, thank you for the info, and until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.